We believe in change and we're prepared for it with new techniques and new approaches. And as for our part, we feel that you're the best pieces of manpower available in this whole region. Let it go out there today, baby. Three, two, one. And once again, our mighty ship is back on course. Welcome to the Sports Talk with Devin Wade podcast. Mama, there goes that man. Welcome, welcome, welcome to a special edition of the Sports Talk with Devin Wade podcast. This is not like the usual editions. This is a very special tribute, a conversation we had one of the all-time greats to ever do it. Talking about Jim Brown. Jim Brown passed away at the age of 87, and I was able to dig up a conversation we had from 2008. This is a long time ago. I found it, and it was a a great conversation, one of the true highlights. I've been able to interview and be around and be in locker rooms and on fields of play of some of the greatest athletes you can imagine. I mean, everybody. And from time to time, you come across – the the kid in me comes across – athletes that meant a lot to me as a kid or to the history of the game and at the pinnacle of that was Jim Brown. Jim Brown, I had an opportunity. He came to Texas Southern in 2008 to support a program that was going to help students succeed at Texas Southern University. Now, before I get into the little bit of the backstory, so you'll know, I have a little bit of context because some of the context I even have sort of forgotten. But before we get in that, I want to remind you guys, you can always be interactive and be a part of this Sports Talk with Devin Wade community, and you can go back and listen to past episodes. You can also call us 24 hours a day, 832-941-6614. Leave a message, a question, a comment, feedback, a suggestion for upcoming shows. If you want to disagree with a point that myself or a guest made on the show, you can call us 24 hours a day. Leave a message. I won't answer. Leave a message and you just might end up on the very next podcast. In addition to that, on Instagram, dwade909. Getting a lot more active with Instagram. And I'll tell you more about that the next episode. And also uh, the Facebook group, Sports Talk with Devin Wade Facebook group. Join the group. It's a a great group. A lot of folks post stuff. I post poll questions from time to time and videos and other things that I come across, but so many others post things as well. If you have a favorite team or player or event, you can post that anytime on the Sports Talk with Devin Wade group page. And finally, you can follow me on Twitter at Wadesword, W-A-D-E-S-W-O-R-D. So for those of you who are listening for the first time, we have a lot of fun. We do a variety of things on each and every episode. I have usually have a group of guests that we call the Special Teams Unit, and that consists of writers, former athletes, and various sports, and just special guests that uh, like to contribute on the podcast. So that being said, it's been a minute since I've had a podcast, and I'll tell you all about that the next episode. But as it pertains to this conversation, found out that Jim Brown passed away at age 87. And I so happened to have found this interview from 2008. I mean, I, first of all, I didn't know until I listened to the interview, I forgot what year it was. So I didn't have any prep for the interview. So I didn't have time. I didn't know that this was happening. I literally got a call from our then general manager, KTSU. George Thomas, and I I will always be grateful for George Thomas uh, calling me to make sure I got it because I wasn't there. He called me and said, hey, Judge, we got Jim Brown coming. I want you to come interview him. So I had roughly an hour, two hours, maybe maybe less, and, and I wasn't in position to really do any research. So I think I looked up the website for the program he was promoting, or I had already read information on it, and I knew it was coming to Texas Southern. And I knew he was involved, didn't have any idea I would ever have an opportunity to have a conversation with him. So in this interview, you'll hear a conversation about that program and his involvement at Texas Southern University. But you also hear the football stuff. And when we talk about the acting stuff, he got your boy together. He really, really got me straight. And I will say this, as much as I record as many times as I'm on the air, 
I always go back and I hear a lot of things that I would like to fix or correct, or maybe I should have said it this way versus that way. Well, I go back and listen to this interview for the first time in 15 years. And uh, I want you guys to uh, go easy on your boy because it was not my finest hour. It was a long time ago, and hopefully I have evolved quite a bit as an interviewer. But no prep, and I was extremely nervous and then sort of relaxed, always intimidated a little bit, just a little bit, by Jim Brown because of his demeanor. But the more I talked to him, it was really like talking to my dad. My dad was the same kind of guy. I mean – my dad was the whole sort of spectrum, but there were parts of his personality that were exactly like Jim Brown. He was uh, he was a, a hard, tough man like Jim Brown was. So that did give me comfort, knowing that we were having a, a, a very intense conversation at points of this conversation, but he did embrace it, and I really think that he enjoyed it. And after the interview... We talked for another probably 30 minutes. Some of that was recorded, and I'm not sharing that here, but we had an opportunity to talk about some other things as well. So uh, I also want to mention this, that in the middle, I guess, and again, I don't really remember, but in the middle, we totally shift gears. And it's because I get maybe a a tape ran out or we had to start part two of the interview. I don't know exactly what happened, but this was taped for KTSU Sports Talk. But I wanted to share it here with you guys. We did run it on the air. And again, this is 2008, so a lot of things I don't remember. But one of the most amazing opportunities I've ever had was to sit down in a room with Jim Brown. There was no one in there with us. It was he and I in the room his people were outside of the room. My general manager was outside, and it was just Jim Brown and I having a conversation. And like anything else, there were so many other things. I, and looking back, I wish I would have asked him. And uh, there were a lot of comments about current events, Pac-Man Jones, Kobe Bryant, stuff like that. So I hope you guys enjoy this conversation with the great Jim Brown. Welcome to KTSU Sports Talk. Devin Wade here with legendary, the legend of the NFL, Jim Brown. And, of course, you're in town extending your program, American, here at Texas Southern University. Before we talk about what you're doing here with Texas Southern students, tell folks a little bit about the American program. Well, actually, American was started about 20 years ago because of gang violence. I want to do something about these young kids killing each other for no reason. And then it evolved into us developing a curriculum of life management skills, which most of them needed because they had no fundamentals on how to take responsibility for themselves. And uh, we've grown over 20 years so that we're able to stop violence, but we're also able to uh, help kids that's falling through the cracks in schools, uh, bring the grade point averages up, attendance up, and disciplinary actions down. So those are two areas that American concentrates on, stopping the violence among youngsters and elevating the educational level in schools. Now, uh, when you you work hand-in-hand with a lot of schools and school districts and and things of that nature, trying to get kids to act right within the framework of a school setting, what are your thoughts on public school education as a whole? Why are so many kids falling through the cracks? Uh, Money. (laughs) The lack of money to uh, supply the schools with all of the things they need meaning well-trained teachers. Uh, you have a lot of the rich people that are creating their own schools. And uh, the allocation of funds that come from your state government has a lot to do with what goes into your schools. So it's a simple uh, situation that if you don't have the money to get the teachers and get the equipment, then you're not going to have a very good school. What about connecting with a certain segment of society? Because one thing that you, you've been known for is you've been been able to go in any neighborhood in any city in the United States, and not because of your football glory, but because of who you are, you've been able to go in and connect with kids that nobody else can really connect with. What do you attribute that to, and why are 
school districts missing these kids so much? I mean, besides just the obvious with the, the financial issues. Well, let me give you an example of something. I played in Cleveland for nine years, and I hung out on the east side. I hung out basically with black people, played golf with black people, and some Italians and so forth. When I go back now, I go back to the same place, right. see my old partners, see my black friends in the poor neighborhoods, and we have a great time. Uh the new players, they don't know where the east side is. <laughs> they, they, they're on the west side, right. which the rich people. <laughs> and so as you live your life and you have gangbangers in your home and you have the girlfriends and their mothers that, you know, when they bring their mothers up and you see they're just human beings and know you care about them, you know you're trying to help them change their lives, that word gets around and you get a reputation over 20 years that you have helped people change their lives in a good way, not taking away their dignity. Uh, it's a real simple thing. When you share your life with people and you care about them, respect them, and you listen to them as well as talk to them, uh, you usually get pretty good results. So I've always stayed simple. I'm with the little man. I'm never going to be a big shot. I'm never going to be an elitist. I'm never going to have an entourage. I'm going to live my life well. But I care about people, and it's all people, not just black folks. Now. Right. And youngsters I love because they're smart. And if you know they're smart and you talk to them in a smart way, they'll talk back to you, and you'll learn a lot that you don't normally know. And they like when they know you're listening to them. So it's no big secret. Uh, most communicators get along with uh, any kind of a person almost. Right. Well, I know you personally are able to do it. Uh, how can American? how have they been successful uh, in doing it? I know, uh, you know, you look at the website and, and it's it's outstanding and it, it's a, just a number of pages of, of information of results that American has, has, has produced over the years. How has that program been able to be successful? You know, because obviously you're one person, but this program is helping Thousands, thousands and thousands of, of people. Well, I'm glad, Devin, that you paid attention because I have two young men with me today that are an example. One was with me about 15 years. One with me 17 years. One was one of the most notorious gangsters in Los Angeles. And one is a, 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 a Latino powerhouse. And uh, they're living a great life. They're taking care of their babies. They're happy. They're teaching the curriculum. Uh, one is teaching in the camps. One is teaching it all across the country. And uh, they've learned from that curriculum and learned from the success that they've had, and that transcends them. And other uh, people that are looking for a way out, they can latch on to those examples, and that curriculum stays consistent. So consequently, we're not saying one thing today and something else tomorrow. And uh, it's a spirit about it because we don't fall under a corporate head. I'm not trying to make a major corporation that's going to make a billion dollars for me and a few other people. I mean, a movement using the American curriculum and the attitude that we present uh, as a part of that movement. And we join other organizations. I work with the uh, drug court because they give uh, uh, people on drugs another chance. I work with the judges in Cleveland on a second chance program. Right. They give people a chance to get educated rather than go to jail. So I lend myself to all of those things that have nothing to do with American because we're only one part of what's needed to solve the problem. So when we recognize that, uh, we get a lot of respect around the country. And when you say American, usually if it's on uh, the highest level or lowest level, it, it, it generates respect. Right. I know that, that something new here and, I, and what you're in town for is you've tied in American with uh, with students that will be coming here to Texas Southern. Tell us a little bit about what's going on with that and, and what's that about? Well, the great thing is Richard Johnson, along with uh, the dignitaries here at uh, Texas Southern, have uh, adopted our curriculum to be a part of their summer program. And I think it's called a summer academy. And uh, they have, they're offering academic courses, but now they're offering a life management skills course, which is a foundation of all education. And a lot of these kids don't have those fundamentals of problem-solving, decision-making, communication skills, uh, family relationships, all of these things holistically make for success. And so for the first time, we're going to be a part of their summer, summer academy, and uh, hopefully the results will be higher graduation rates eventually and the dropout rate uh, going down tremendously. And so 
it's a great breakthrough because you have a great combination of people. George Foreman is a part of it. Uh, the staff here at uh, Texas Southern. Bill Russell is a part of our organization. I'm going to try to get him to come to town. Right. We're going to try to support Texas Southern everywhere that we can as American because when an academic uh, institution reaches out to an institution like ours, it gives us another level of credibility. Right. And that credibility is needed because I deal so much with the poor and the disenfranchised until sometimes they're looked upon as not being quite equal, but they are equal. But the credit, but the uh, uh, the accreditation of a uh, academic institution just helps tremendously. Now, you, you know, when you when you think about something like this, this is going to be ongoing. This is a legacy for you. And, and what? How do you uh, put this? Rate this in relation to the other legacies, the 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 football, and then the acting. Uh, I mean, you have several things that you could be known for it, through eternity. But as your legacy, what, where does this rate with the other things that you've accomplished? Well, can you imagine uh, of a person not thinking of a legacy? are not thinking of what they've done, and really uh, on a certain level knowing that people don't know half of what you've done <laughs> <laughs> or half of what you do. I do things all the time. Well, but I live a life with the people. My home and my life I share. My family I share. Not in a normal way, but in a manner that I always want to help human beings in many ways and that's what I've always done because when I was young and poor and didn't have nothing I was helped and that was the thing that allowed me to be in a position I'm in now because I had no self-esteem and someone showed me that I could be a smart person right so I got my four years at Syracuse I graduated I spent my my time in the service as a second lieutenant came out as a captain in reserves. I did all work for PepsiCo for nine years. So I've done all those things. So I am maximizing my mental capacity. And only certain people has a real look into that because it doesn't boil down to a social activist or a football player. It boils down to a lifestyle. So my life is not for me to amass anything because I'm very fortunate. It is for me to be impactful on making this a better country and making this a better world. Not that I'm going to make it a better country, a better world, but I'm going to have an impact to some degree in positive change. And if I'm satisfied that I'm doing everything I can do, then I don't need any validation. See, a lot of accolades are based on validating somebody. And the last thing I'm looking for is to be validated or exalted or anything like that because that's a problem we have with black leadership chasing ambulances, trying to be the <laughs> leader and proclaiming uh, that we're going to get freedom through protest and crying the doggone blues. When I know that if we get off our butts and do everything we can do for ourselves, that is the quickest way to any kind of equality or any kind of uh, self-determination. But, so I don't know if you understand. Yeah, what yeah. I'm saying, well, I understand what you're saying, but and, and 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 maybe the issue of a legacy is because somebody like you, who reached such heights uh, in in our culture, which is based on whatever it's based on, I instead of you living some extravagant lifestyle, you are a beacon in that you have dedicated your life, and the legacy could be uh, uh, something that people could look at to model their lives after. That's that's why I think that the legacy, well, it, more part of it, is important. You know what's interesting? Uh, there's a guy out here by the name of Richard Johnson. I don't think a lot of people know his name, but this man is brilliant. And he's done so much since I've known him. There's a man that's known all over the world by the name of Bill Russell. They're in the same category. Bill Russell is a wonderful human being, so is Richard Johnson. One is famous, one isn't. I but, love but, them both and respect them both. But nobody wants to talk about Richard Johnson, <laughs> right? Right. Well, and that's the thing that that that's how our our fame driven our culture is. Mm -hmm. But the thing about it is, when they look at at Bill Russell versus Richard Johnson, well, I guess you know when Richard Johnson does it, it's like, oh well, he Richard Johnson is just a saint. But when Bill Russell does it, who had all the trappings of fame, then it's something that people make make people look. I mean, just for the same reason why people buy a certain beverage because the athlete endorses it. When they see a guy like you who is a legend devote your life to helping others, that's that's a true inspiration to, to, for self-examination to say, hey, if Jim Brown can do this, 
then I know I can go help at the soup kitchen or, or help with well, relief. that sounds correct. That's very logical. But unfortunately, that's not true. And I'll tell you why. We have a program that can save lives. I talk to people in corporate America, and if they can't do it the way they want to do it, they won't support you. So the issue with them is not saving lives. It's the power that they have. And if they can save the lives under the circumstances, they want to do it. Right. So sometimes when you get to the top and expect to find righteousness, it's not there. It's not there. And so consequently, you have to set a standard of your own. Right. And if you do it in the middle of the night, nobody knows. You know you did it, and God know you did it. Right. And if you serve, good things come to you, and you rely on that. And remember now, I'm 72. How are you? <laughs> I'm 37. You're 37. Now, remember, <laughs> we're not supposed to agree because you ain't old enough yet. <laughs> you see it from 37 years old. Right. I see it from 72. You're not wrong. You're just looking at it with 37-year-old eyes. Right. And uh, I, I, I applaud you for the questions, but the answer is going to be the same. I don't think the inspiration comes that Jim Brown is doing this and I'm going to do it. I think that when I am able to be true to myself and I deal with people as human beings and I can transcend being a slave and still recognize the greatness in some white people and know that my high school coach was the greatest man in my life and he is white and not be afraid to say that to Minister Farrakhan or anybody, that's what I'm talking about to find a truth of my own under God rather than trying to struggle with the contradictions of what you're talking about. Because what you're talking about is logical, but it'll get people confused because you have expectations of that to be true that so many times it's not going to be true. Yet it sounds very good and very logical. Right. Okay. Yeah, well, and something else I'll pick up. I mean, what you're doing is so divinely inspired, uh, you know, from a religious standpoint, yet you have a more mainstream message than maybe even pastors, church people. I mean, they're, they're supposed to be doing the same work, but well, yet, and, and you're doing God's work. You're a bright, you, bright young man because it is about the human spirit and God's work. But God know how to do his work, and he equipped us to do our work. And I think in the church sometimes we're calling on God every day until we don't maximize the people that are listening to us and even the ministers don't maximize their ability to make change and see so you're right it is spiritually the foundation is spiritual right because no money can ever make me do what i don't want to do and one of my freedoms is that you can't buy me with money i don't money don't excite me i'm not going to give up my dignity okay i went to jail because i didn't do something it don't mean I haven't done bad things in my life, but I didn't do that. And they were going to appease me by saying, you can pick up some paper on the freeway. And I know, no, no, right. I didn't do it. You give me what you want to give me, and I'll serve that time. And I'm going back to doing what I'm doing. But I'm never going to let you allow me to get a lesser sentence so that uh, you can look good and embarrass me. And I know, doggone well, I didn't do it. So there are certain principles that are basically spiritually uh, founded. And uh, it's a beautiful thing because having run the football and physically knocking people down and taking the blows, that's good. But to submit when you're right and allow the best thing to happen and take the hit, that's another deal. When you learn to do that, You've arrived on a different level. It is being able to submit when before you would strike out and have the right to do it. Can a strong man submit? Can I do it because it's better for my whole family? Or can I resist it because I know I'm right in this particular case? Right. The only thing I'm going to prove is that I'm right and destroy everything else. Or submit and take the blows and let it work itself out for the better. Betterment. So that's the way I look at it. And that's not like corner. That's just straight out strength. Talk about your days uh, as a football player. And you're just known for your your strength. 
Uh, where does it come from? I mean, how you know, where does it come from? Every man w- wants to be a man like that deep down inside, but many fall short. Where, how have you been able to stay so strong? Because, I mean, you're human. You've had adversities. You've had uh, false accusations. You've had all sorts of things come your way through the years, letdowns and disappointments. But yet you maintain your dignity and your strength. Where does it come from? Well, I'll tell you sometimes, boy, you know, sometimes things are scary. Uh, sometimes uh, it's like you want to give up because it's unfair and the cards are stacked against you and you get that little feeling sorry for yourself mess. And uh, thank goodness I can always overcome that. (laughs) And you got to have patience because you want to get things fixed immediately so you get immediate gratification and you don't have the patience to let them work themselves out of you to, to apply yourself to working them out over a long period of time. But once you have success in that way, then you're a tough warrior. So my change came in, in uh, college when they told me I couldn't play running back. I didn't have the talent. And my superintendent of school came up and told me, you, you better not leave school. You better stay here and, and, and work it out. And I stayed, and I went from fifth string to All-American in one year. <laughs> the coach said I improved. <laughs> but after that, I said to myself, I would never, ever let anybody tell me what I couldn't do. So when you mess with me now, you got a determined warrior that's equipped with the idea that I'm never going to give in. So you're wasting your time. I'm going to fight you for forever. And I know you don't want that fight, so I'm going to win every time. But in winning every time, I'm not winning anything. I'm just serving but you're not going to turn me into a slave, a comfortable slave, because I'm not going to buy that. And you, you had such a, a tremendous sports career. Uh, what do you think when you look out on the landscape? And because I, I know a lot of, I mean, I've co- I cover all that, at least, and I know uh, that the media has changed since when you played, and and the way things are is just is super, super magnified. Do you think today's athletes are, are getting a bad rap, or do you think these guys are falling short of what they should be? Well, some of them are getting a bad rap because they're getting lumped into the whole group. Right. <clears throat> and some of them do wonderful things and do the best they can. And you have some wonderful young men out there and women, you know. Uh, unfortunately, uh, a lot of them do not have fathers. A lot of them do not have the benefit of a full four years of education. Right. And a lot of them are impressed by money. Because they gang- never had the gangster it, yeah. culture. Right. The hip-hop culture. And you put money and, and gangsterism and hip-hop and music together. And took it into a penitentiary concept, young kids have got a major problem, man, because the heroes are the wrong people. And uh, you can talk about the verbiage on these records. I know if I'm in my house and the youngster put on one of those records with all the vulgarity, uh-huh. it just hits my ear. And I can't stand to have it, that I have to take it off. Yeah, I, I know when, exactly And when what it you hits mean. me that way, I know it's not correct. Because it's so unnecessary, it's vulgar, and it's unnecessary at the same time. Right. So uh, that influence is tremendous because these young kids find nothing wrong with it. So it means they're not sensitized. I mean, they're insensitive to hearing vulgarity just for the sake of vulgarity. And, and violence as well. And violence, and talk about it in a glorified manner when, in essence, all you are is a ridiculous fool that is following the doctrine of Willie Lynch and perpetuating evil upon your own people. How can you glorify evil against your own people? Even when you realize that being such a coward, when you get caught, the first thing you ask your grandmama to do is put up the house so you can get bailed out. (laughs) You don't even take, you you don't pay the cost to be the boss. Right. So there's no redeemable factors in that whole culture there's no redeemable factors, and but the culture has such an impact on a lot of these young people until the generation, total generation, gets blamed. Well, I want to I want to shift gears slightly because I, I tell you on our sports talk show on KTSU Sports Talk, you know, I get a bad rap for defending athletes because I think the NFL has some hypocrisy in it on a higher level, from the ownership level, from the management level. I always say this: my rule is this: if you're out of jail, you can play. 
Because after all, football is, is a violent game. It's a tough game. It's not You're not a doctor. You're not a lawyer. You're a football player. And when they vilify these athletes, I, I think I think at the end of the day, the fans are not ultimately going to care a lot about the, the guys' uh, off-the-field activities. Now, am I wrong? Uh, no, you're not wrong in having an opinion. <laughs> you have a right to an opinion. Right. And when you generalize, uh, you're probably right. But but you got to really get very specific. Well, we we frequently talk about guys like Pac-Man Jones, who uh, you know who can can't stay out, seem to stay out of uh, out of harm's way. My perspective is, hey, you know, if he's not been convicted of anything, so why are you you know just kicking him out arbitrarily, and why why is nobody fighting for him? Well, no, that's oh, we've we I had two or three conversations with Pac-Man and his agent. Agent is fighting like crazy for him, and I was supposed to talk to him. Then I never heard from him when I was in Tennessee. Here's the thing: you have to be very specific. You can't generalize. Each case is a case. Okay, now there is a way of generalizing because you have the publicity and you see more people getting in trouble. Uh, but when you get specific, it becomes very clear. He hasn't been convicted of anything. Uh, <laughs> is conviction the truth of the matter? Do innocent people get convicted? Oh, every day. Well, but I'm saying even people get off. Well, the thing is, so if you think Pac-Man is an example of something, that's good. I don't. Right. Wait a minute. I don't think he's an example of anything. I'm not talking about whether he's convicted or not convicted, because uh, his demeanor and his activity, even after being accused means to me that he's not well-versed and he hasn't decided what he wants to do. So I would look at him as a confused young man that hasn't decided what he wants to do. Because first of all, he's playing in somebody else's arena. We don't set up the money to own teams. There are rules in those arenas, and they pay you to play. So once they pay you what you want, you are supposed to abide by those rules. They have a they have a brand, and they want to protect the brand because the brand is what the public is buying. That's why they can pay you the money you get. So once you decide to play in that league, you give up certain rights. Okay. And that's logical. They pay him. They say, here are the rules. Let's roll. Yeah, I understand that. and I, But then well, you ultimately— But they say there's no argument with that part of it because if you are on the air today and you don't show up, you're breaking the rule, <laughs> and then somebody have to deal with it. And on this show, you don't want me cursing and screaming and hollering. Right. You want me to conduct myself. You want a candid conversation, but you don't want a vulgar-laden uh, conversation from me because it's not right. And it wouldn't do you any good or the show any good, right? Right. So I'm going to come here, and I'm not going to use words I might normally use <laughs> because of you. Right. And the respect that I have of being on your medium. And my goal should not be to come here and try to change your medium, but to give the people that listen to you an understanding of my thoughts. Do you think people actually turn away from the game when, when a guy like Pac-Man Jones? Like, do you think Dallas Cowboy fans won't be Cowboy fans because, hey, the Cowboys went out and got Pac-Man Jones? Well, that's a, mind, that's a simplistic way of putting it, in my opinion. Uh no, I don't think he can have that impact. Right. But I think what has happened in Cincinnati <laughs> is an example of characters being able to put a coach in a position where he is telling his star that, hey, well, as regards to what you say, you're going to play or you're going to be somewhere else. Right. And uh, he's a good man. But they've had too many incidents over there that he can't excuse, and it's turning around and biting him. So what would you say about Cincinnati situation? Well, first of all, they need to uh, sign some people on defense and then <laughs> win a few more games, and then a lot of that will be solved. But uh, you know, they, they have had a lot of, lot of issues. But I also know that Cincinnati has had a lot of issues with African Americans, period. And, I, I mean, I don't, I, it's been documented that they've had. And, and I do think, well, and not to defend these guys, but I do well, no, think the I mean, athletes like get profiled. Like I say, I don't know which ones you're talking about. I mean, Scott, I gave you Cincinnati as an example. And, uh, you know, we gave, had used Pac-Man as an example. 
Uh, you know, there's Jeremy Shockey, there's different people that have different situations, you know. Uh, so you're right in what's in your mind because you have particular things that you know is fair and other are not fair. What I'm saying is that I like to adhere to my contract, and even though I might not uh, be a Baptist if I go in a church, I will try to follow the rules of that church, otherwise I won't go, you know. And I'm not being phony, I'm just being respectful. Right, right. So when I said I was going to come here and uh, work with Texas Southern, I have to recognize that they have something to uphold. And I can't just bring the full Jim Brown in here thinking that now I can just be anywhere I want to. I have to be considerate of what they're trying to establish. Right. And that's all I would ask of any player, to be considerate of the league that's considerate of you. Kobe Bryant, to me, is a person that called his owner an idiot and the general manager nothing. Right. And his players nothing. And now they're one of the best teams, not because just him, but because these people he thought was nothing are playing their butts off. So I don't give Kobe a pass on that. He he needs to make amends for that. Yes, he needs to make amends because he sat down and nobody but him knew anything. <laughs> Is that, that he's been having like a, a lot of people just hadn't responded well to Kobe, period, and it's because of stuff like that. Well, he is a uh, mixed-up young man. Right. And because I don't even think he gets along with his family, but I know in this case when he called Dr. Buss an idiot, Dr. Buss is a nice man right. and a good man, a good human being and a great executive. And Mitch Kupchak, uh, I don't know if he's the brightest guy on earth, but he, did, he made some good moves. And Andrew Bynum is... Uh, a, a potential star in that league. And so I just point out to you that this young man, in my opinion, needs to be talked to by somebody so he'll understand how privileged he is to have his ability and to have an arena to display it in. Let me ask you this. I say this all the time, and it, it was preached to me by my father because obviously I never saw you play in person. Uh, or, you know, you were you were mm -hmm. long retired by the time I was born, but you are widely considered the, the greatest football player of all time. Do, do you have you do you get at any thought at all? Do you agree with that statement? Well, you asked me two questions. Right. Which one you, right. Want, to, <laughs> one you want me to answer? <laughs> are you the greatest football player of all time? No. There is no greatest football player of all time. Okay. Because it's not measurable. Right. There's no way to, to quantify it truly. But the great thing about football is that it is a team sport. And there's so many variables. Okay? Right. And you get handed a deck of cards as a player. And that's what you got to work with. It might not be the deck of cards you would want to maximize your ability. So if I'm lucky enough to go to a team that wants a running back and I'm going to get the ball and I'm talented and I'm going to have a chance to show. But if they're a passing team and I'm going to get the ball eight times a game, right? I'll never show my full advantage. If Gail Sayers didn't hurt his knee, who knows what he might have done. So why get into that particular conversation? Because we don't need to have just the best of all time. We just need to know the glory of each one of them and appreciate the differences and and the the particular details of Gale Sears, the acceleration, the heart of a Walter Payton, the strength of an Earl Campbell, right. the strength of a John Riggins, uh, the speed of Ollie Matson. You don't even know who that is. Do yeah, you? I'm Ollie Matson. Okay. So I. <laughs> know the strikers of the ball and I know what they have and what they don't have. And uh, when we get together, five or six of us at the Super Bowl or something, we love it because <laughs> we know we're special because we all had a talent. Right. That's not being humble because why would I want to go around saying I'm the best? Only one man could say that because he had a sense of humor with it. That was Muhammad Ali. Right. He could say that because he had a twinkle in his eye. But, you know, uh, who was that guy that came after him? Joe, not Joe Frazier, uh, Larry Holmes. <laughs> yeah. Larry Holmes said, why don't people treat me like Muhammad Ali? I said, look at yourself, Larry. Gee, you don't look like him. You don't sound like him. You're not thinking like him. You what know? a great jab, though. 
Hmm? Had, had one of the best jabs in, in heavyweight he's history. He was a good fighter, but <laughs> why would he try to be, you know, this guy that Can't God be made him beautiful, great body, and quick mind, and activist, and twinkle in his eye? Ollie was one of a kind. I'm a Joe Frazier guy, by the way. So, well, yeah. <laughs> Joe is a good friend of mine. Is he really? And Joe was a great warrior. Well, why'd, well, you, why'd you hesitate? If that's your friend, don't. Well, I, no, no, he's, that. that's that's my guy. I mean, well, I just saying, well, so, so so many people jump on me for saying uh, that I people, love Joe Frazier. You're talking to me. Yeah, okay. Well, See, you do that to <laughs> so many people, and here you and I face to face, and you have an opportunity <laughs> to deal with my own thoughts, and you keep telling me about these people. I'm a Joe Frazier guy. So. But don't say it with pride. <laughs> Joe right. was a great warrior, a great fighter. Yeah. Well, like and, I said, uh, I have know. my favorites. You are one of my favorites. Earl Campbell is one of my yeah, favorites. Earl's my favorite, one of my favorite. Earl's one of my friends. You know, he used to come in and do the uh, sickle cell tournament with him. And he and I were always good friends. In fact, most of the running backs I really have a great relationship with. Gail Sears, uh, every time he sees me, kissed me on the cheek. Really? Saw him yeah. at a golf tournament. That was a true honor as well. It, I mean, obviously, this is a great opportunity to sit and yeah. talk with you. This is the, the, the ultimate. Uh, let me ask you this. Uh, you, you talk about... You know, playing in your era, and you really, it's hard to quantify who's the best. Well, how how well do you think you would do today? Because obviously you were as big as some of the linemen that you went up against when you played. You were faster than probably most wide receivers. Uh, how do you how do, how would you fare today? <laughs> <laughs> Look, let me tell you something, man. When you examine the players. You see defensive backs that are little bitty dudes. Right. You got some receivers that are little bitty dudes. You got some of them that are lanky and tall and bigger. You got some big fat linemen <laughs> that thirty five pounds overweight, fifty pounds overweight. <laughs> you have some great linebacker athletes, about two sixty can run and jump. Great athletes. And you have some quarterbacks that can throw the ball, receivers that can catch it. You have too many fumbles, too many drop passes. It's like looking at, 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 at black players miss free throws, and Europeans usually don't, okay? Uh, Not taking things, care of fundamental. Things are what they are, but when I look at any back in the league and I look at what he has blocking for him and what he has to go against, and if I had to play and use him as my example— you don't have anybody that would be my example because they wouldn't work as hard as me. Mm-hmm. And uh, God gave me a combination of speed, balance, size, strength, and intelligence. And a football player needs that combination, then he has to use that combination properly. So it's not just having a skill, it's how to use all those particular skills that it takes to play that kind of a game. So uh, I would be all right. And I would set a standard on what you'd have to try to do because... I feel that if I have an opportunity to start at the same time as you, you got a problem. <laughs> I think if you're just as good as me, you can't beat me. You got to be better than me. Right. That's how I think. Well, uh, let me ask you this. And KTSU Sports Talk visiting with legendary Jim Brown. And I know you. I know you have time constraints, and I know you have to get out of here. Uh, a couple other things. That, you know. What, I you know I know I'll later on I'll kick myself and say I should have asked him this I forgot to ask him about this uh, I want to ask you something slightly different uh, my wife is Native American and I know well, one game that you are, were hugely successful in was lacrosse mm-hmm. talk a little bit about your love for the game of lacrosse because you were all America player uh, you're one of the, the greatest well, ever they you say you told your audience that your wife was Native American so that means that uh, you know that. Lacrosse was a Native American, not a Native American, but a uh, indigenous person's game. Right. Because Canada is not America; it's in the Americas, but it's not America. And it was Canada's national sport, and the Indians in Canada played it, and Indians all over played it, and they used it as a way of averting wars. And it was a great game. They have a game called box lacrosse, which is played inside. I loved it. Loved it for the speed and the Stamina took and the skills that you had to develop with your stick. Right. And uh, I played it for the fun of it. No money, no nothing, no promises. And uh, all of the lacrosse players I know love the game for the game's sake. And it's a great tribute to the game because uh, you're not going to have a real pro career, but you can have a lot of fun. 
Yeah, and, and, uh, and, and exhibit your athletic skills. I know Syracuse is still uh, a dominant team year in, year out. Johns Hopkins, Duke. Uh, you still follow the game on a collegiate level at all? Do you ever check in? I follow in? it pretty much. Not real close. Right. But uh, I know who the strong teams are, basically. And uh, I did an interview the other night on the cross, about a 10-minute interview, which I was very happy to do it because a lot of people are now recognizing it as a real good sport. And a lot of kids can play it just for the athletic uh, experience. Right. Everything don't have to be getting ready to become a pro, you know. And it's one of those kind of games. want to ask you about the acting career. We uh, we do a segment here where we honor actors of the past, and we did a thing where we did uh, we had nominations for the best all-time athlete turned actor, and you were you were in the finals for your career. Obviously, uh, what a hundred rifles, tw- a dirty dozen. Well, and, who won it? Oh, uh, well, you won't. I, John Amos won. For, oh, for good times. John is a good actor. But so. you win the you win the finals. You got a lot of votes, a lot of folks. Yeah, but, 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 but I'm gonna tell you something. Just interesting. You know, when you talk to people, they get talk, they talk back to you. I bet most of y'all don't know the roles I played. Well, I mean, I've seen you some of your western. No, I'm just saying. I, I bet most of you don't know the roles I played. What do you mean? I bet you guys never did your homework. Well, I, I bet you you don't know my body of work. Spike Lee always says that you got to judge him by my body of work. Now, I'm not challenging you here because I know you don't. Well, I do know more than you think. I, I watched Hundred Rifles. No, you got to be more than uh, that. Uh, I, I, I've seen uh, Dirty Dozen. I, I know you did uh, a number of quote unquote black ex, uh, black exploitation films. I, I know, I know, uh, no, I know some of your some no, of your work. No, I do know a number of black exploitation films. Okay. I was an argument against black exploitation. Well, black, in that because, in that era. No, no. See, you got to know the <laughs> stuff. You can't just box me in like that. Okay. Set I'm me saying straight. to you real simple that most uh, people don't know what my acting career was. They really don't. I had some wonderful roles. Uh, I've had some bit parts that were like really nice roles. You ever see a film called Any Given Sunday? Yes, I Oliver did. Oliver Stone. Right. Yeah, L-L- had a wonderful Pugino. scene with Al Pacino in that, and so forth and so on. So on. But be careful with my acting career because <laughs> it was well, a pretty good career. Well, like I said, the Raquel Welch thing well, was, was, you know, was one of those. But uh, you ever hear Tick Tick Tick? No, I had I hadn't seen that. Well, I had to so Netflix that. I said, tick Tick Tick. I, I'll look for that. It opened up Radio Music City Hall. It opened up to uh, really very good reviews. Right, Ralph Nelson was the uh, director. Well, a lot of people say you could have been an Academy Award-winning actor, but you came out you were, you were masculine, a masculine, sexual black man, and a lot of people in Hollywood weren't I ready for played, that at I the time. Played, I played my role. See, I was a it was a groundbreaker. Right, exactly. I was the first uh, African American leading man to make love to a Caucasian leading lady on the so-called big screen. That was a hundred rifles, Raquel Welsh. I uh, still played, my, that's my favorite movie of yours. By the way, well, I played pretty much every kind of role you could play, from the good guy to the gangsters or whatever, which was breaking down the taboos, because uh, usually they didn't want you to play certain roles. Sydney couldn't even play certain roles, and so it was a very interesting career because of the subtleties of it. Right, you see, and I'm so confident about it. I smile at you because when you said John Amos, <laughs> well, won it was it, it was for when roots. You said, when you said John Amos, won, oh, for roots, for roots. Oh, okay. I'm glad, I'm glad you didn't. I'm glad you got away from that. Other well, yeah, we, well, you know, but no, it was for you know, <laughs> yeah, was, uh, was, I, you know. But John is a good actor. John, no, we just had fun with it. Was a fun it was mm-hmm. a part of our show. Well, I'm having fun now, big fella. <laughs> I certainly you know. enjoy you. you you were hanging out with us. Uh, you, you, I know a couple of my, my partners were supposed to be here. Couldn't get away. Uh, the Silver Fox, Kevin Allen, and my, my brother slash uh, co-host uh, Jordan Biscuit. Biscuit was supposed to be here, and he, he sends his regards. I would give them all my best and tell them uh, that Willie Lynch is my uh, reference point okay. to individuals that are well-informed. Because there's no reason not to be well informed, right? Okay. Well, like I said, I I I don't want to I, I don't want to tie up your whole afternoon. I know you have to get out of here, uh, but well, I want enjoyed it. I've enjoyed it. I I, I I really I thoroughly have enjoyed it. It's been a, a great experience. You're a great American, well, great hero for what you do uh, uh, off the field, and, and you know obviously you're an icon for what you did 
on the field. Thank you. Thank you so much. To have your comments heard, call 832-941-6614. How about that for a conversation with the late, great Jim Brown? We hope that you have comments and feedback on that interview. Please hit us up on the sports line, 832-941-6614, How about him really correcting me and sort of setting me straight on his acting career? That stood out to me. And the other thing that stood out, maybe because of conversations like this, or just sort of the the changing of my perspective over time, like he mentioned in the interview. Uh, I've done sort of a 180 in understanding how these leagues move. Uh, It doesn't make me any less defiant when it comes to the power of these sports entities and how they handle the athletes. And we talked about this with Ja Morant on Saturday, and you'll hear about that on the next podcast. But we're talking about a lot of the same things that we were talking about 15 years ago and what a wonderful perspective from Jim Brown and just the patience that he had to sit down. He didn't know me from Adam. He just didn't he didn't know who I was and he still treated me with immense respect. And you see why he is able to sit down with anyone anywhere from the White House to the Trap House, and and really he affected change in both areas. And and I'll tell you, there's some things that happened over the course of his life that drew criticism. Some deserved, some not so much, but that's the life of a man. And he was that, a true man and a true civil rights pioneer. And he really, ultimately, if you looked at his whole life, he was committed to uplifting black people. So all of those things are just a part of a very complex, tremendously gifted actor, athlete, activist, Jim Brown. So with that, going to wrap this one up. But again, want to remind you, check out other episodes. We'll be back with you real, real soon. 832-941-6614. Or you can hit us up on the Facebook page, the Sports Talk with Devin Wade group, on Instagram, dwade909, and at Wade's Word on Twitter. And if you can't remember any of that, please remember these four things. Number one, I don't do no favors after 6 o'clock in the evening. Two, I ain't got no money. Three, I'm not harboring any fugitives from justice. And four, bye. This has been the Sports Talk with Devin Wade podcast. Remember, you can follow him on Twitter at Wade's Word. Thank you for listening.